I'm going to, I know there's a slide coming that is my family. Um, so I am standing next to my husband, Chuck, and next to me is my oldest son, Ryan, and his wife, Caitlin, and then my really sweet grandchildren, twins, Harper and James, are six and a half. And then on the other side is my youngest son, Richard, and his wife, Hope, and another sweet grandbaby, Weller. He's 15 months old, and they are just all sweet loves. So, well, I wasn't much older than my granddaughter the first time I was invited to spend the night away from home. I was about eight, and a girl up the street invited me for a sleepover. Well, during the night, there was a terrible thunderstorm, and I was petrified. And so my friend's mother came in the room where we were, and she said, y'all don't need to fear. God is with you. And she said, say, God is with me over and over till you go to sleep. So I lay there, and I said, okay, God is with me, God is with me, God is with me. But then I went into a peaceful sleep. The truth is that my friend's mother taught us an important biblical truth that night. We are not to fear because God is with us. He's always wanted to dwell in our midst. He's always wanted a relationship with us. And he doesn't want us to fear. One of my favorite professors, Dr. Stephen Bramer, says 365 times in Scripture, God says, do not fear. I'm with you. And it's not that he says, you don't have to. He says, do not, do not fear, because I'm with you. So we're going to take just a few minutes in our recap of the story. And as we go, we're going to look at the times that God said, don't fear, I'm with you, or I'm with you. Okay, y'all ready? When God created Adam and Eve in his image, they dwelt in the Garden of Eden, and it was perfect. There was no sin. He dwelt in their midst, and there was no fear. But then the crafty serpent speaks, and both of them disobey God. And sin and death enter the world. And where there's sin, there's death, and now there's fear. But we see that Cain... The people in the days of Noah, the people in the days of Babel, also show where there's sin, there's death. We have a covenant-keeping God. There was a descendant of Noah named Abram. And God told Abram to leave his country, his relatives, his father's household, and go to the land that God would show him. And God would give him a people, a land, and through them, a worldwide blessing. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And understanding this covenant helps understand so much of our greatest story as we go through. But here's what God told Abram. Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. And then God reiterated the covenant with his son Isaac, who also needed to walk by faith. And here's what God told Isaac. I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear. I'm with you. And then God told Jacob, I am, the, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you till I've done what I have promised you. 
Well, Jacob has 12 sons. They become the head of the 12 tribes of Israel, and his name was changed to Israel. One of his sons is Joseph, and we know that story. Jacob loves Joseph more than his other sons, and his brothers hate him for it. They end up selling him off to Ishmaelites on their way to Egypt, where he becomes an Egyptian slave. But by God's goodness and grace, he ends up being second in command to the king. And he takes the country from the time of great prosperity through a famine. Now his brothers are in Canaan and his father. And they experience the famine. So his brothers go to Egypt to get grain. Joseph ultimately forgives them. And he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. By the way, God wasn't going to let the line of Abraham die in a famine. Now when Jacob comes to Egypt and sees Joseph, this is what he tells him before he dies. The God before my father Abraham and Isaac walked, this God's been my shepherd all my life to this day. God was with Jacob. And the scripture tells us God was with Joseph. Now after Joseph dies, there's a new Pharaoh in town. He doesn't know Joseph or the good that Joseph did for the Egyptians. He just thinks there's too many of them. There's too many Hebrews. They're too mighty and strong, and he wants to get rid of them. And one way he tries to get rid of them is by ordering newborn Hebrew males to be cast into the Nile. And this is when Moses enters a story. Moses' mother's Hebrew. She has Moses, and when she can't hide him any longer, she puts him in a basket and sets him in the Nile. And then Pharaoh's daughter takes pity on this crying baby and takes him home to raise. So Moses grows up in Pharaoh's household for 40 years. Towards the end of this time, Moses sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and he flees to the Midian Desert. But that's where God miraculously speaks to him from the burning bush and commissions him to go to Pharaoh to get Pharaoh to let the people go. But Moses tells God, who am I to to lead the people out of Egypt? And God tells Moses, certainly I am with you. So Moses goes to Pharaoh to get Pharaoh to let the people go, but his heart's hardened. Even after God sends plague, after plague, after plague, Pharaoh says no. Until the last plague, the death of the firstborn in Egypt, unless the blood is over the lintel, the doorpost, which it was over the Hebrews. So God passed over those homes, but not the Egyptians. Well, Moses didn't have to go to Pharaoh this time. Pharaoh gets up in the night and says, go. So the Hebrew people celebrate the first Passover and they leave Egypt. But then Pharaoh changes his mind and he sends chariots and officers and men from the country after the Hebrews. And the Egyptians think that they're hemmed in because there's this big body of water, the Red Sea. But for the one true God, that water parts. And the Hebrew people walk across on dry ground. As the enemy is in pursuit, God returns the water and they drown. God miraculously delivers his people. Now they're in the wilderness, and they need to learn how to survive. So God gives them manna and quail and water, and they need laws to live by. So he gives Moses the Ten Commandments at the top of Mount Sinai. And he tells them how to 
build the tabernacle. And guess what? He's going to be in the Holy of Holies. He's going to be in the cloud by day and the fire by night because he's always wanted to dwell in our midst and he's going right with them. Well, then they get to the edge of the land and Moses sends out 12 spies to spy out the land. Joshua and Caleb are two of them. They come back and they say, oh, it's flowing with milk and honey, but the people are huge. We're like grasshoppers. They're afraid. Now, Joshua and Caleb want to trust God and go into the land. But the others don't. They're afraid. And Moses tells them, do not fear. The Lord is with us. If only they had listened to him. But they don't. And so they wander 38 more years. It's a total of 40 years where they don't get to enter the promised land, but their children do. It's that second generation that gets to go into the land. That's why we've studied Deuteronomy 28 so much already this semester. Deuteronomy means second law. It's not a new law. It's a reiteration of the law for this second generation going to the land. And Deuteronomy 28 explains it so well. If they're faithful to the covenant, they're blessed. If they're not faithful to the covenant, they're not blessed. There's punishment. And understanding that helps to understand so much of the Old Testament. Before Moses dies, he tells the people, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Then Moses dies in Joshua's commander, and he has some big shoes to fill. And God tells Joshua, Have not I commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God, he is with you wherever you go. Now Joshua sends out spies to spy out the land, and they go in through Jericho. They meet Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute, but she professes faith in the God of Israel. She hides the spies for their protection. She helps them escape out her window, down a rope, back to Joshua. And Joshua heads to take the land. But they are led by the Levite priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant. That is is what represents the presence of God. They are led by the presence of God with the Ark of the Covenant. And lo and behold, they get to another body of water that needs to part. The Jordan River. But it parts. They go into the land and the manna stops. And then God had given them instructions on how to march around the city for seven days. And they do just like God said. And the inhabitants of Jericho are destroyed except Rahab and her family because she professes faith in the God of Israel. Well, after Joshua dies, the people are led by judges. One of the judges was Gideon. And Gideon struggled with fear. And God told Gideon, surely... I'll be with you. Peace to you. Do not fear. And then the last judging prophet was Samuel. And scripture says Samuel grew and the Lord was with him. Well, the people got tired of being led by judges. They wanted a king. Everybody else had a king. They wanted a king. So God allows them to choose Saul. But Saul wasn't faithful to the covenant. So God chooses the next king, David, by sending the prophet Samuel to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem. And he goes and anoints the shepherd boy in the field. And what God tells David 
is that through his seed, there will be a king and a kingdom that will reign forever. And God also tells David, I've been with you wherever you've gone. And David went through some tough times that were fearful. And this is what he wrote. The Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? And this one we all know. I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. And then before his son Solomon becomes king, David tells him, Be strong and courageous and act. Do not fear or dismayed, for the Lord, my God, he's with you. Solomon becomes king, and the temple was built during his reign, and it had the kind of glory of the Lord in it. But Solomon wasn't faithful to the covenant. He let his pagan wives turn his heart toward their pagan gods. And because of his disobedience, God said it won't be in his lifetime, really for the sake of his father David, but in his son's lifetime, the united kingdom of the promised land would be divided. And that's what happened. Rehoboam became king, and the kingdom split in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. This is a terrible time. All the kings in the north are bad. The majority in the south are bad. And the prophets are saying, repent, repent, and turn back to covenant faithfulness. Do you know that in total, the prophets reference Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26, which is similar to Deuteronomy 28, 1,000 times. God told him a thousand times. I've told you a thousand times. That's how much he wants a relationship with us. He wants them to repent. But they're stiff-necked and they don't do it. And so judgment comes. The northern kingdom falls to Assyria in 722 B.C. And then the southern kingdom falls to Babylon in 586 B.C. And the way Babylon does things is they deport people. So we know with the first deportation, it was Daniel and his friends. And then in the second deportation, it was Ezekiel. And in the third time, they go in and destroy, burn Jerusalem, and it's in ruins. It's a dark time. The line of Abraham now is in captivity. Before, it's interesting to note too, before the temple, I mean before Babylon destroys the temple, Ezekiel makes the note that God's presence left the temple. They were profaning the temple. They were profaning God. But then we see Ezekiel brings another message. He and Jeremiah. God never stops loving his people and he never stops giving them hope. And in this new covenant that they talk about, God says, I'll be their God. They'll be my people. And like he's always wanted to do, he'll dwell in their midst. Well, then in 539 BC, the Persians conquer Babylon. Cyrus becomes king and declares that they can go home and rebuild. Whoa, pack your bags, everybody. We've been in captivity 70 years. It's time we can go home. They can go home. And they go home in three phases, under Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. This is where we are in the story this week. This is the post-exile period. And the focus is rebuild the temple, the city, and the exiles spiritually. Haggai and Zechariah are two post-exile prophets 
They were contemporary. Zechariah probably younger. Haggai is focused on building the temple, the actual temple. Zechariah is focused on building the exiles spiritually. By the way, Zechariah, of all the minor prophets, he has more messianic prophecies than any of them. He is a fascinating, even prophesying the first and second coming of Christ. Well, as Haggai and Zechariah are working to get the temple built, Ezra comes along. He has the task of teaching the exiles the law and reinstating the sacrificial system. We're going to take a minute and look at two messages from the prophet Haggai. If you have your Bibles, we're in chapter 1 and we'll be in chapter 2. So for the exiles to experience God's presence and blessings in their midst, they need to rebuild the temple. Now God told them that he's their God. But for them to obey them, they've got to obey the Mosaic laws because many of those laws require sacrifices and they need a temple to do the sacrifices. So to obey the law they need a temple and then they can better be able to recognize God's presence in their midst now this is their response to that message the time is not yet come okay rule one when God tells us to do something the time is not come is never the right answer <laughs> so the Lord responds to Haggai Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? They had put aside rebuilding the temple, but they had not put aside building their home. Their priorities, they were putting over God's priorities, and they were making selfish choices. And God says for them to consider their ways. And I like how the NIV translates it. Give careful thought. Give careful thought to your ways. And notice, too, in verse 6, that they are experiencing the consequences of Deuteronomy 28. There is little harvest, and they earn wages, but it's like putting it into a purse that has holes on it in it. I'm pretty sure I've owned one of those purses. <laughs> Rejecting the law and God is what sent them into exile for 70 years. So they need to obey. They need to get it right. This time, this is one time they do it. They obey. Verse 12 says they obey the voice of the Lord and they reverence the Lord. And then look, God promises his presence. I am with you, declares the Lord. So we should ask ourselves a question. Am I obedient in putting God's first? Am I apathetic or procrastinating with anything God wants me to do? A school assignment that I had last year was to pick a spiritual discipline and practice it for two weeks and then write about it. So I choose silentness and being attentive to the abiding nature of Christ in me. In particular, I focused on John 17, 21, where Jesus prays to the Father for us and says, Father, as you are in me and I am in you, that they would be one in us. And the way my professor taught it to us, he said, because of what Christ did on the cross, we are as close to the Father 
as Jesus is to the Father. That's overwhelming to me. And so what I would do to practice his spiritual discipline is to sit still, just still before the Lord in silence and think about that verse. With my Bible opened in that verse, before I had my quiet time, before I started reading my Bible or my prayer time. It is so special to recognize the presence of the Lord that way. Well, I loved doing it so much, I decided I wanted to keep doing it. So I kept practicing the spiritual discipline. And then, recently, seminary, and maybe writing for Heart to Heart, maybe, got overwhelming. I stopped doing that. Now, I still had my Bible time and my prayer time, but they were rushed. Because I was so fearful. I'm not going to get this seminary work done. I'm not going to get these assignments done. And so then I'm preparing this lesson. And so I asked the Lord, am I being disobedient in any way? Is there something that I'm doing that I could experience your presence in my midst better than I am? Oh, wham. Now, like Cricket always says, you know, I don't hear an audible voice of God, but I heard God. Oh, yeah, you are. You have put seminary and ministry above me. That's your priority. And that's what you're fearful about. Now, those are good things. Nobody would probably argue seminary and ministry are good things. So is building a house. But they had put that house over God. Over their, that was their priority instead of God. And here's what happened. When I confessed that and sat still before the Lord and just got quiet before the Lord and, and go back to just recognizing God's presence in my midst, worshiping Him, and then going, not rushing through my quiet time, my, my prayer time, guess what? All that fear went away about those assignments because He's got this. He's always wanted to dwell in our midst. He's always wanted communion for, with us. He died for it. So if there's anything that you are putting before the Lord, give careful thought to it, even if it's good, if it's ministry or family or work or whatever. He wants a relationship with us. Well, the second message that God gives Haggai is just a minute that the latter temple will be filled with glory the exiles had obeyed God they started rebuilding the temple but then the older generation gets discouraged and they stop because it doesn't have the Shekinah glory that it had in Solomon's day it didn't meet their expectations. They even wept. And so God tells them to take courage and work. For I am with you, he says. And this brings us to our key verse in the passage of Haggai, where God promises his presence again. As for the promise I made you when you came out of Egypt... My spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. 
there to take courage and work and go back to rebuilding. And Haggai and Zechariah both give them this message of hope that there's going to be a time that the, a greater temple with a promise of God's presence and it's going to be better than Solomon's temple and we know the Messiah comes to the temple and we know there is a millennial temple that is going to have the presence of God's glory and the peace like we can't imagine so that brings us to ask this question am I obedient if I don't understand God's plan our obedience is required, not our understanding. If you ever think, you know, I expected to be at a different place in my life right now. This is not quite what I expected. This really is not meeting my expectations. I thought I'd be in a better job. Or I thought I would have 10 grandchildren. Or I thought I would not be dealing with this family issue or this friend issue or whatever it is. If we know that we are obedient to the Lord in this issue, here's what he says. I am in your midst. Do not fear. Well, the people complete the temple. But it needs protection. And so Nehemiah comes in and the Jews and they build a wall around it. And they build it in just 52 days. And Nehemiah's motto as he goes along is the God of heaven will grant us success. Nehemiah knew God was with them. Well, the exiles keep struggling to keep the law. And God sends one final prophet, Malachi, to get them to obey the law. But Malachi also brings a promise of hope. And the Malachi promise is, there's one coming in the power of Elijah, and he is going to signal the coming of the Messiah. Now, as we look ahead in the greatest story, we know that promise came true. John the Baptist came in the power of Elijah, signaling the coming of the Messiah. And guess what his name is? Guess what he's going to be called, Matthew tells us. Emmanuel. God with us. And the Apostle John tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And at the Last Supper, Jesus tells his disciples, his death and resurrection is going to inaugurate the new covenant where he will be our God and he will dwell in our midst. There are a million reasons in our world today to fear. In our world, in our culture, I worry about my grandchildren. There's just a million reasons to fear. Whatever the cause, whatever the fear, Jesus is with us. And we have his Holy Spirit as believers. There will never, ever be a time that God's presence is not with us. And when we follow him in obedience... We experience his presence in our midst in the best possible way. Now, because I was a psychiatric nurse for a really long time, I do want to say this. There are times when people are obedient and walking with the Lord 
and still struggle with fear and anxiety. And I believe that God gives men and women of God the gift of counseling. And that is so important and it can help healing. And if you know somebody or you're in, ever in that place where you need to seek good godly counseling, do it. But I also want to say this. I want to be careful how I say this. But there's no amount of counseling, therapy, medicine that gives total healing. And if somebody is turned away from God, if somebody is turned away from God in disobedience, he is the anchor for our soul. The only one that can bring about total healing. And he gives us the gift of these counselors and medication and all together that brings somebody experiencing the Lord's presence in the best possible way. In Revelation it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them. And they'll be his people and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll no longer be any death, no mourning, no crying, no pain, no fear. Now, <laughs> I still repeat over and over when I'm afraid. God is with me. God is with me. I never stopped doing it since I was a little girl. But now, I've learned more about how powerful the word of God is. So when I pray, God is with me, God is with me. Now, I say, you are a shield to me. Certainly, you are with me. You'll never leave me or forsake me. You've been my shepherd all my life to this day. I need to be strong and courageous. But I'll fear no evil for you are with me. You are my light and my salvation. And usually I still fall into a peaceful sleep. Let's pray. Oh, Father, that Lord Jesus, that you love us so much as sinners and just still want to dwell in our midst and have communion with us. You died for it. Help us, Lord, to obedient, be obedient so we can experience your presence in our midst in the best possible way. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.